Why don't you guys go ahead and have a seat and say hi to somebody as you're sitting down, if you would. I want to welcome you guys uh, to E3. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, uh, it's, it's my desire and, and my hope that uh, during this season of preparing for Christmas and and dealing with lists of, of presents to buy, that you are experiencing moments of peace and moments of uh, where you just kind of pause with your life and acknowledge um, that the, the, the mind-blowing reality of God coming to be with us and to uh, show us what life is like um, as a human um, that you're, that you're pausing to, to realize that that is so much bigger than, than uh, you know, what your Christmas list is, is telling you to get. Uh, each week, we've been doing this, this thing called Advent, which is a, an, a church tradition that's been around for a long time, uh, where each week we kind of focus on a different aspect of, of what it means that God is coming to be with us. And this week, I was reading... Um, a lot about actually uh, the, the kind of second, what, what we might know as the second coming of, of Jesus. And you see, Trace was singing a song, Marvelous Light, there, and the, the pre-chorus says over and over again, you know, sin has lost its power, death has lost its sting, right? And in so many ways, like Advent uh, points to the resurrection of Jesus. And I know it's kind of like, well, we don't like to mix our holidays too much, Christmas and Easter. But there's this undeniable reality that Advent is related to, to Easter in some wacky way. And that, that line, sin has lost its power, death has lost its sting, comes out of the Bible, out of a, a book called 1 Corinthians, which is a guy named Paul. We're going to talk about Paul tonight who is writing to a church at Corinth, and it comes in the middle of chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul is writing all about this mind-blowing thing called the resurrection. You see, like, as believers of Jesus Christ, um, we hold on to this idea that there was a man named Jesus who lived, and then at one point was really, really, absolutely, utterly, dead when they took him down from the cross. And then a few days later, this man named Jesus was really, really, utterly, incomprehensibly alive. Not a figment of somebody's imagination, not kind of alive, not a nice, pleasant thought, but actually physically alive. And uh, it's one of those things where you just have kind of pause as a, as a person of faith and go like, do I really like, have I ever known anybody else that's done it? No, nobody else. But Jesus did. And uh, furthermore, that points to a reality of our lives that one day we're told that's going to happen for everybody. 
that God is going to kind of turn this whole world upside down and backwards forwards. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the significance of the resurrection. And he says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. So as we kind of uh, light the Advent candle this week, the thought for us to think about is how Advent points to this reality that at the end of time, Jesus is going to return. Like there's two Advents. There's one Advent as we celebrate now, Jesus coming as a child, as an infant, as a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. But at the same time, Advent is pointing to this second returning, a second Advent, that one day he's going to return. I hope you hear those words, and I hope you hear the weight of them, that God's promises to Israel 2,000 years ago is the same promise for us, the oppressed, the weak, the helpless, the outsiders. God promises to bring you in, to bring you home, to be close to you. And that's the promise, that's the reality that we live in as believers. And what I, w- what I would like us to do is before, uh, before we kind of uh, sit for a while and let me, listen to me uh, ramble on about a Christmas carol, I'd like us to just stand and kind of recite uh, the uh, words of a prayer, just kind of in recognition of that time. So we all stand up together and, uh, and pray this prayer. Who are we, Lord God, that you should come to us? Yet you have visited your people and redeemed us in your Son. As we prepare to celebrate his birth, make our hearts leap for joy at the sound of your word, and move us by your Spirit to bless your wonderful works. We ask this through him whose coming is certain, whose day draw near, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys go and have a seat. Well, uh, last week, Pastor Mark started us off in this series that we're in now called A Vintage Christmas. And what this is, is our attempt to kind of take a look at classic Christmas stories, uh, Christmas TV shows, Christmas movies that have been around for, for decades in some cases and longer, and to look at them through the eyes of faith and to try and understand what they might have to say about us as people Uh, what they might have to say about God, what they might have to say about the times that we're in. And last week, Mark started us off with a Grinch that stole Christmas and talked about how his critical problem was that his heart was, how many sizes too small? Three sizes too small. (laughs) Well, there's some debate. You guys can like wrestle it out after the gathering, but, but the, the, the interesting thing for me was I was sitting with somebody who knows a, a little bit about physiology and anatomy, and, they, and, and when the Grinch's heart is enlarged, like in the cartoon, they're like, man, if his heart got that big, he would just die. Wouldn't that be a bummer way to end the cartoon? Like his heart gets really big, and then he just dies of an enlarged heart? That's the way I would end this, this story. Anyway, um, this week we're going to turn our attention to a story called A Christmas Carol. Uh, it's a classic, classic story written by Charles Dickens, and it's a story that really has a lot to say about uh, things in, in society. It deals a lot with wealth and greed and ambition, and also deals with the poor and the outcasts. 
And it, it really came out um, of Charles Dickens' life. So I want to kind of set up what we're going to talk about. When Charles Dickens was a young boy, when he was about 12 years old, his father was thrown into debtor's prison. Debtor's prison was something that existed, I think, mostly uh, in England in the 1800s, where if you could not pay your debts, they would kind of not mess around with you. There was no avoiding collection, collection calls by you know, screening your calls on voicemail. You were thrown into jail until you could work off the debt. So Dickens' father's thrown into jail at that point, and his family decides to move close to the prison where his father is. So now his whole, his world begins to be uprooted. And then he has his belongings. As a 12-year-old boy, his belongings are sold to help pay for his father's debts. And he's put to work in a factory. Now, this is a kid who is kind of from a middle-class background, not used to this. And he's put in a factory, essentially, like helping to make shoes for 14 hours a day. Somebody told me later, uh, somebody was talking to me this morning, and they said, you know, actually, the, and, the, and the real rub is that uh, his family basically left him and left him working in a factory, even after his father had gotten out of prison, left Charles behind to keep working. And, and what this did is it, it, it put, uh, it imprinted itself on Charles uh, as a young boy. And as he grew up, you can see this in his other writings, Great Expectations and such, that he always has this kind of concern for the poor and kind of this kind of, uh, this lens that looks at them in a certain way and talks about how we have a responsibility to the poor. In, the, in about 1840, Charles goes around England and he observes like horrendous, horrendous conditions because this is the height of industrialism where child labor is kind of an understood thing in factories. He sees kids working, you know, hours and hours and hours a week because it's cheap and easy labor. He sees kids working in mines. And he begins to write a pamphlet of social commentary, basically addressing like why this is wrong. And as he gets into it, he decides to change it into a work of fiction. And this becomes A Christmas Carol. The book is published in 1843. It's never been out of print. It was released to instant commercial and critical success. So it just seemed to strike a nerve. It was well-written, and it was the right book at the right time. And it, it took off like wildfire. It was also almost instantly adapted to the stage. So instantly people began to recognize this is something that we could put, you know, visually onto a stage, and it would be a compelling tale. Um, the first movie is released in 1901. Sorry about the lights, everybody. It's not like we're trying to stimulate any seizures, but there are gremlins in our system. Um, um, the first movie is released in 1901. It's a silent feature. And I have counted, I'm not sure, but this might be the most reproduced movie of all time because I've, I've counted at least nine different cinematic versions of A Christmas Carol. Uh, up include, of course, the most recent one with Jim Carrey, the animated one. The, the one that we might know the most is, is, was released in the 50s. It's a black and white version, and it's kind of like that's the version that I saw as a kid that creeped me out to know. And like when the ghost of Christmas yet to come and Jacob Marley's ghost, I mean, I was like out of the living room, you know, I got to get some lemonade, sorry. Um, um, and when Mark told me I had to talk about this, I, I really didn't want to because I like, I don't want to see that ghost again. Um, but that's kind of the classic. That's considered the classic film. Uh, there's also a Muppet Christmas Carol, which we saw. There's a Barbie Christmas Carol, 
which I have not seen, but I'm sure is darling. Um, there's been um, Broadway musicals and the best, which I don't really know how this worked, but there is a mime version of A Christmas Carol. I don't know if anybody's up on mime versions of anything, but uh, I haven't seen it. So what this tells me about this story is that anything that has been reproduced that much, what it tells me is that we as a people, we as sort of Western human beings, find this story important. We resonate with it. We connect with it. We say, give me another version of A Christmas Carol. So it's, it's something that somehow we, we, we call true and we call necessary. And I'm sure that probably most of us have either read the book or seen the movies, but I thought we, we, we would just start off tonight with kind of revisiting the plot, right? The book centers on a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a businessman. He is in partnership with a guy named Jacob Marley. They are not nice people. They are obsessed with money, obsessed with wealth, obsessed with greed. They have no tolerance for anything that would be considered compassionate. Let me read to you what, how Dickens describes Mr. Scrooge. This is on page two of the book, so there is very little like tension or, or questions about how this is built up. He writes, oh, he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Tell us what you really feel, Charles Dickens. Hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret, self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. He carried, this is great, he carried with him his own low temperature, always. No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what time it was. No man or woman ever once in all their life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming, they would tug their owners into doorways and around corners to avoid him. So that's your portrait of Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, the story opens on Christmas Eve, and Mr. Scrooge has an employee named, what, Bob Cratchit, right? Bob Cratchit has a, has a wonderful family. He has a physically handicapped young son named Tiny Tim. And Mr. Cratchit asks Ebenezer Scrooge, can I have Christmas Day off? And Scrooge goes on this rant, which is like amazingly bad taste, where he's just like, I can't believe I would give you, why would I ever give you Christmas Day off? It's a pointless day. You're working, you know, I'm paying you for nothing, blah, 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 blah. But he relents, and he lets him have off uh, Christmas Day. They close up shop. Mr. Scrooge grows, goes home to his decrepit, dark, cold old house that he does not light or heat because he's too cheap. He finds darkness and cold to be inexpensive. And so, therefore, he doesn't light his house. And then he encounters the ghost of Jacob Marley, who has passed away years before on Christmas Eve. Jacob Marley tells Mr. Scrooge, you're going to see three more ghosts tonight. And here's why. Because, Scrooge, you're making a mess of your life. And you're going to end up like me unless you turn your life around. This is your chance, Ebenezer. So, Jacob Marley's ghost leaves and the, first th and the three ghosts come. They are what? The ghost of Christmas? The ghost of Christmas? 
and yeah, you guys are good. Um, he endures all the things. The Ghost of Christmas Past, of course, shows Scrooge like kind of tender moments of his life. Kind of reflects on who he was and kind of how he started to get the way he is. Ghost of Christmas Present uh, takes Scrooge on a, on a visit to Bob Cratchit's family where he sees a family in poverty yet celebrating in a very tender fashion. Also shows him sort of an estranged nephew where they're talking about Scrooge and it's kind of this opportunity where he gets to hear what people say about him when he's out of the room. And it kind of hits him hard. And then finally, of course, the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge what's going to happen if, if things don't change. The Cratchit family, Tiny Tim, has, has died because there is no money for anybody to care for him. And Scrooge is, has, been, uh, has died alone in a really creepy graveyard. Um, and so he, he is panicked at this point in this dream that, or this experience he's having. And he thinks he's dying. And if he wakes up and he's not been killed, right? And the first thing he does is he's, he runs out on the street, street. He finds a kid. He tells the kid, go buy a goose. Take it to the Cratchit family. He, he uh, ends up just lavishly spending on everybody. He's a changed man. Like something has happened. He uh, reconnects with his estranged nephew. And then he spends part of Christmas Day with the Cratchit family and the book ends with, you know, Tiny Tim sitting at the table going, you know, God bless us everyone, right? That's the story. So here's the deal. Uh, I want to be honest with you guys. There is nothing new that I can tell you about a Christmas carol. If you do not get the point of a Christmas carol, I cannot say anything to help you. It's really obvious. Greed and ambition, bad. Tiny Tim, good. Help the poor, so on and so forth. So here's what I thought. Tonight, let's talk about brainwashing. Yes, let's talk about brainwashing. In the 1950s, in the Korean War, the North Koreans and the Chinese captured about 20,000 U.S. soldiers. And the vast majority of these captives were exposed to some form of brainwashing. And uh, when they began to come home, scientists and psychologists figured out two things. They figured out that, A, it was actually possible to brainwash somebody. Because out of these thousands and thousands of captives, there were a few American soldiers who chose not to return to the United States. They essentially said, you know what? We think we were wrong, and we think the North Korean people were right. We are embracing a new identity, a new nationality. We are now communist citizens of North Korea. But the scientists also discovered that even though it was possible, it was very, very difficult. Because out of the 20,000 United States captives, only 20 or so actually decided to do that. But when the soldiers all came back, a guy named Robert Lifton, a psychologist, said, you know what, uh, since all these guys are here and they've been exposed to brainwashing, I'm going to study what, what happened. Because you can't really go to like a grant agency and go, I would love to have a grant to see how to brainwash people. Can I, can I get that money? So since he couldn't do that, he had these guys who were exposed. He's like, I'm going to figure out how you would brainwash somebody. So here's the deal. We're going to walk through this. 
if you are a person that would ever be inclined to brainwash somebody, please don't take notes. Because the last thing I really want to do is be responsible for any, particularly any little brothers or little sisters being brainwashed to do chores or anything like that. But if you were going to brainwash somebody, hypothetically, this is what you would do. First, you would take this person and you would isolate them. You would get them away from their friends. You would get them away from anything that they could uh, kind of cling on to in terms of identity. You would, of course, kind of put them under adverse circumstances. You would uh, deprive them of sleep. Deprive them of food, deprive them of water. Of course, you would probably threaten them with physical violence and you would probably follow through on those threats. And then this is what the interrogators will begin to do. Brainwashing revolves around three phases. The first phase of which you are trying to break down this person's self. So you begin to assault their identity. You begin to tell them that they are bad, bad people. And what you're trying to do in, in the midst of all of this uh, kind of tension and, and, and rough times that you're making this person experience, you're trying to in, induce a feeling of guilt in a person. Not just a feeling of guilt of like, wow, I've done bad things, but I am in fact a bad person. So you keep hammering away at their identity, hammering away, until you get to this point where you convince a person to betray themselves. You get a person to say, I agree with you. And in this context, it would be like, I agree with you. I, it is, I am a U.S. soldier, and I am bad. I am evil. I'm not just following orders. I'm not trying to protect uh, South Korea from, from a communist invasion. No, no, I'm a bad person. And at that, per, at that point, if you get a, a person to betray their most fundamental identity, you've brought them to a breaking point. Essentially, they are having a nervous breakdown in front of them. They no longer know what, who they are, what is real for them, and what they believe in. And then you move into the second phase of brainwashing. You introduce the possibility of salvation. So the first thing you might do is, at, is, is give this person like a drink of water, just a little bit lenient, just to, just to kind of shift from bad cop into good cop. And you move from compulsion to confession, Essentially, you move from this idea of like just hammering on them on their identity to this idea that there is a way out for you. There is a way out if you will agree to what we're setting up for you. And if they agree with that, then you instantly channel their guilt. Oh, well, guess what? It's not that you're a bad person. It's that America's a bad country. It's that the United States Army is evil. Not that you're evil. So all that guilt and all that bad feeling that you're feeling, just put it on, put it on your, your commanding officers. Put it on your culture. And then you give them an opportunity to release the guilt that direction. And if they agree to that, then you move into the last phase of brainwashing somebody where you are now beginning to rebuild this person's self-concept, self-identity. Progress and harmony. After you've spent so much time telling this person they're bad and getting them now to release their guilt, now you introduce this idea of like, I know how to make you a good person again. Do you want to be a good person? You know, and if the person has gone, if the guy has gone this far, yes, I want to be a good person. Well, here's the deal. Let's talk about communism. Let's talk about, you know, uh, let's talk about a new way of thinking. Let's bring you back to harmony. And then finally, you would get the person to kind of make a final, ultimate confession, maybe something in writing. 
and then a rebirth where you would reintroduce this person as now a new person. You know, this, they were formerly a citizen of the United States. They were formerly a United States soldier. Now they're a citizen of North Korea. Now they're, now they're a communist. And that is how you would brainwash somebody. And I hope we look at this list. I would assume that we look at this list and we think, how horrible is that? How evil, how terrible that is. But here's a troubling question that I want to ask you. What if a person was in desperate need of brainwashing? What if a person's thinking had become so skewed, so off, that the only way that they could kind of come into any sort of like sane behavior is to remake their entire way of thinking, way of seeing the world? Here's what I mean by that. Do you think Ebenezer Scrooge ever thought that he was behaving badly up until Christmas Eve where he sees these ghosts? Do you think he ever said, well, you know, maybe I should be a bit nicer, but I woke up, I didn't get my full eight hours of sleep today, and, you know, and I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Ebenezer Scrooge acted in a way that was entirely consistent with the way he saw the world. His reality determined his behavior. People didn't look at Scrooge and go like, man, that guy's just really acting out of character. What's up with that guy today? The way he saw the world was bound up with his activity. And the only way Scrooge was ever going to change was essentially to have that reality changed entirely. His paradigm needed to be changed. To put it in technological term, his hard drive needed to be wiped clean and reformatted, preferably with a Mac operating system. I want to tell you a story about uh, another guy who experienced a radical paradigm shift, Um, a guy named Paul, who, if you might know this, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, or wrote a huge portion of the New Testament. But before he was called Paul, he had another name. What was that name? Anybody know? Saul. And was Saul a friend to the Christian church? No. Saul was a Pharisee. And most of us know the Pharisees from the Gospels, you know, like the Pharisees were kind of Jesus' main opponents in the Gospels. They were always fighting with him about stuff. And we kind of are are pretty good, if you've been around church for a while, of kind of recognizing, you know, that the Pharisees are bad people. But, But here's the deal. The Pharisees are not just one kind of block of people. There are actually many different ways to be a Pharisee. There are many different kinds of Pharisees. And I want to tell you just for a couple minutes about two of the main uh, versions of, of the Pharisees at, in the first century in Jerusalem. The first section is followed a rabbi by the name of Hillel. Everybody say Hillel. Hillel. These are the Hillelite Pharisees. Uh, another group of Pharisees followed a rabbi named Shammai. Everybody say Shammai. Shammai. They were the Shammaiite Pharisees. They weren't real creative names, but we'll give them that. So the Hillelites basically looked at this new way called Christianity that was emerging. And the Hillelites had this reaction to it. They said, we disagree with this. With this, We do not think that this is true 
Judaism. We don't think that this is the true Israel. But here's the deal. We believe that our God, we believe that Yahweh is sovereign. So we will allow this movement to kind of go on on its own because if God is not in it, God will bring down this movement. So the Hillelites were kind of the easy way to say it. They, they would be like, they're the live and let live guys. We want to we study Torah. We want to worship Yahweh in a way. We don't think that this Jesus was the Messiah, but you go ahead and do your thing and God will sort it out because he's in control. Now the Shammahite Pharisees looked at this and said, no, 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 no. Uh, let, let us tell you how it, how it should be. The Shammahite Pharisees took with great seriousness the purity of Israel. And so if they saw something like this happen, their, re- their reaction is this, is, this is matters of life and death. We are called to be God's people and you are leading them astray. And so we will oppose this by any means necessary, because that's what we're called to do. That's what God has called us to do. We're to be pure. We're to be on, on, on par with what Yahweh wants. So we will oppose you. And if we need to oppose you with a stick, we will oppose you with a stick. If we need to oppose you with a knife, we will oppose you with a knife. Execution, execution. Stoning, stoning. So based on what I've just kind of said, Hillelites and Shemites, where do you think Saul fits into this picture? Basically, the best we can tell is that Paul was a Shemite Pharisee, or Saul, I should say. So Saul goes around, and Scripture tells us he was ravaging the early church. And he was acting in a way that was utterly consistent with the way he saw the world. Put blood on my hands, because this is my reality of the world. I need to oppose this movement. One day Saul gets kind of orders from the Sadducees, another religious uh, group of the time. They say, go find some Christians in Damascus to oppose. Saul says, absolutely, I'm on it. This is how zealous I am for my God. And he takes off for Damascus. The route from Jerusalem to Damascus would have taken him right through Galilee. Hmm, what happened in Galilee? There's a guy named Jesus, right, who taught in Galilee. So Paul's traveling through the country of Jesus, right? The, the, the lands where Jesus taught and existed. And then he gets close to Jerusalem and it says, a light came, struck him blind, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? Which is a reasonable question to ask a voice that comes out of a light. And the voice says, I'm Jesus, who you've been persecuting. Saul uh, gets up and, and goes into the city as he's told and, and eventually kind of his sight is restored. And his whole world is changed. His paradigm is changed. Now, I'm not in any way saying that God works with torture and anything, but Saul, according to what we just saw, Saul ends up essentially brainwashed, right? The way he saw the world no longer exists and is reinterpreted in the light of a Messiah who came was crucified on a cross and resurrected. And so the, the persecuting of the church goes away. The opposition to this movement of God goes away. 
Saul now believes that, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and becomes a leader in this church. Becomes a, a guy who goes around and plants little churches and eventually ends up getting killed at the hands of an emperor at the end of his life because of what he now believes. His whole paradigm has changed. But don't let me say that. Don't, don't believe me. Let's just let Paul speak for himself. At the end of his life, he's writing a letter to the church in a town called Philippi. And I want you to hear the way he talks about his former life and then his life after the encounter on the road to Damascus. Paul writes this. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strict disobedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Aha, but I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, everything that made up my former identity that was of significance to me. I've discarded it all, counting it all as garbage, as rubbish, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ or faith of Christ, depending on your translation. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. That is a man whose world is no longer the same. Do you agree? And I think some of us would sit there and we go, absolutely, that's what God does. He remakes us from the ground up. We subscribe to this identity and we go, God, change our priorities. Give us kingdom values. Give us, give us the values that, that matter to you. But I think also we would sit and we'd be realistic and go like, you know, God, if, if you're really doing this thing where like you're remaking, um, I'm not sure that I've been entirely uh, remade. Maybe my, uh, to put it in our former terms, maybe our brainwashing hasn't been complete. Because there's areas of my life that to be honest, God, I, I'm not sure that I behave the way you want me to behave. So maybe there's something that's missing. Do you know that uh, 95% of our behavior, scientists say, are actually unconscious choices? Like we go through life thinking that like if someone cuts me off in traffic, I have a choice of whether to kind of do what I mostly do or take a deep breath and pray for that person when actually social scientists would say the reality is that 95% of the time you are reacting to a world based on habits that have been formed over time. When Jacob Marley shows up in Scrooge's house that night as a ghost, he's wearing a bunch of chains. He's draped in these heavy, heavy chains. And Scrooge asks him, why are you wearing chains? And I want you to hear what the ghost says. He says, I wear the chain that I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I put it on of my own free will 
and of my own free will, I wore it. I think we would hear that and we would go, well, yeah, sure, but you know, why would anybody put change? Do you think Scrooge ever recognized the, the change that he was forging in his life? If so much of our life is based on unconscious habits, what I would like to suggest tonight is that sometimes we need to take a close look at the habits we formed in life and recognize that there are chains that we might be forging that we will carry with us for the rest of our lives. And even though that we've been completely remade and we submit ourselves to this Jesus and this kingdom, that there's still areas of our life where we have to say, I think I might be reacting in ways that I'm not even aware of that might be putting myself into, into essentially bondage. Now, am I talking about salvation? Absolutely not. But it sure isn't fun to wear chains and carry them around with them all your life, is it? So what I would like to suggest is that sometimes we have to take a look at the habits we formed in life and we have to recognize that what we think our choices we're making in life have just, are just habits that have become ingrained in us because of, of, uh, of just the way we've always done things. And sometimes the best way to change is not just to think new thoughts or to feel new feelings. Sometimes the way to change is to make new habits that are kingdom habits, that are Jesus habits. You see, Scrooge gets this. What's the first thing he does when he wakes up? He runs out onto the street and he does things that is entirely not consistent with his character. He goes out and essentially starts a new habit, a habit of generosity. Go buy a goose, take it to the Cratchit family, the biggest one you can find. I think we fall into this trap sometime in the church where we think, go back to the uh, previous slide, Zach, thanks. Um, I think we fall into this trap as believers that we think this way. We think, I need to think the right thoughts about Jesus then I will wait for the appropriate feelings about Jesus that will trigger within me the desire to do the right behavior. Is that right? Absolutely, that's right. But sometimes the way things can work are we do a behavior that is consistent with what Jesus wants us to do that will change the way we think about Jesus and it will change the way we think about him and our fellow human beings, and it will cultivate a habit that will break the chains that some of us have been forging in life all of our lives. Am I advocating some kind of like works without love? No, but I am advocating some works sometimes, whether the feeling of love is there or not. Things that Scrooge did and Scrooge got. So what I want to leave us with is this question. Um, this season, the next few weeks, what foolish choices can you make? I was meeting with a friend of mine, a guy named Andrew, uh, early last week, and he said, well, you know what, you know what a Christmas carol is about? He's like, it's about the, the foolish choices Scrooge makes as a result of his identity being changed. And I think the question is for us, is if our identity has been changed, where can we make foolish choices? Where can we do things in the next few weeks that make no sense, maybe to the world around us, maybe even to a life that, that we used to have. Foolish choices of generosity, like how we treat our finances. Foolish choices related to hospitality. Who is in our inward circle? Who do we welcome into our homes? 
Foolish choices of our words and encouragement. How do we use those? How can we say, you know what? There's a person that I really can't stand, and I think they're actually kind of mean to me, but you know what? I'm going to encourage them. Does it make sense? No, it's foolish. But maybe out of living in this kingdom that Jesus uh, has, has established, I need to kind of start forging some better habits, and maybe a habit is just the way I use my words. And the inner feelings and the thoughts might just follow that. Um, how you use your time in terms of service. Some of us might look at our schedules and go like, there is no way it would be foolish for me to take on something else. Well, maybe that's exactly what you need to look at. So um, I think that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Uh, Our changed lives, our paradigm shifts ought to make us foolish in some way. They ought to make things not make sense all the time to the world. And uh, Trace is going to come up and kind of lead us in in a last song. I'd like us to all stand up, and we're going to pray another prayer together. This is um, a prayer by a 13th century monk named St. Francis. He lived in Italy, and he rejected and threw off kind of the trappings of wealth and middle class uh, kind of comfort and embraced a life of poverty and simplicity. And I would love for us to just read this prayer together, maybe as a covenant for some of us, to kind of look for ways to be foolish this season. So read this with me, please. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to life. Amen.